Life in a Small French Village, Montaigne, the 1970s, Episode 1. Once upon a time, each French village was considered a unique place and not at all like the surrounding villages. According to locals, in those other villages there were strange goings-on and disagreeable folk. And back then, you arrived in a village directly from the fields too, not like these days when you first pass through look-alike yellow or beige cement housing developments. There were also several cafés, and many people went to them to meet others, to exchange news, ideas, and become friends of a sort. But each cafe had its own character, and you weren't welcome in all of them. And back then there were still small village shops, and you could buy products from home gardens. And there were village squares that were a heart of sorts, and things happened in them. And there were local cranks and odd characters, not just folk ironed out by television and the pressure to conform, like today. The village of Montigny wasn't beautiful, although it once had been. You could see that from the old photos. There had been no sidewalks, the broad streets were of mud or dirt or cobblestones, and the stone houses had a certain elegance. There were more trees back then, and weeds sprang up wherever they wanted. But even in the 1970s, houses still had a patina. Stone walls, some chalk and lime facing, but uneven, as if an afterthought, or put there when the owners saw the necessity of filling in a corner or had the resources to do so. And windows were wood-framed, and there were still wooden shutters, like in the old photos, although they too were beginning to disappear. Montaigne was shaped rather like a badly tied shoelace, one end far too long and trailing out towards the flat fields. My house was at the shoelaces' end, the last house, and just past that was a field with Charolais cattle, then a church, the last building, and then, further off, a huge old barn filled with straw. The church was dedicated to St Felicity, a very minor saint, or, as they say, a saint of the fourth category. It's a rather flamboyant and elegant building for a small village of a few hundred, and it dates from the 16th century. But it isn't the original building. That one from the 13th century was, along with its priory, completely destroyed in the 15th. The only witness to the priory is a street name, Rue de Moutier. But even the word Moutier, the ancient one for a priory, means nothing to most people today. The fact that the church is quite a distance from the village is quite unusual. Of course, there were several tales to explain that. One was that all the surrounding houses were destroyed after an outbreak of leprosy in the 14th century. Another explanation, possibly the true one, was that there had been a fire and it had consumed all the houses surrounding the church and they had never been rebuilt because the ground was unstable. Of course, local rumour also insisted that there were secret tunnels under the field and they led to some far-off manor or abbey. But that's a story you often hear and it's almost always false. However, in Montaigne, agricultural workers 
did claim that the field sagged from time to time and revealed underground structures that could have been tunnels and they had to be filled in with stones. These holes could possibly have been what was left of the crypt of the old priory. But I never saw them anyway, even though I came to know every inch of the field and gathered my field mushrooms there when the cattle were elsewhere. Charolais could be nasty creatures, I was warned. They had even killed people. But that just might have been local rumour as well. There was another rumour too, one of tombs in the graveyard surrounding the church sinking into the ground. Certainly one heavy, imposing stone with a formidable surrounding low wall had definitely sagged. Said to be haunted, that an evil person had been buried there and that a ghost-like mist rose out of its depths on certain nights. Uh, this was, of course, a throwback to the old days when villagers would dig up someone suspected of being a vampire, hammer a stake through his or her heart, then burn the body. And all swore they saw the corpse writhe in evil agony as the fire consumed it. The custom was now out of fashion, of course, but the great dare amongst village children was to go visit that haunted smoking grave at night. No reasonable adult in the village would do such a thing, but I did, of course, curious as ever. And to my great disappointment, I never saw a mist or any ghostly apparition. But let's go back to that story of the fire destroying houses around the church. It's quite interesting. When did it take place? Was it the real reason for the disappearance of the church and priory? Once... A fire was put out by the strongest young men in the village, standing in a line and passing water buckets made of thick burlap or animal skin from hand to hand. It wasn't until 1670 that the job of professional firefighter was organised in Paris. But in Montaigne, on the night the fire raged through the houses and was now consuming the church, a crowd of villagers appeared, holding high a huge crucifix and praying, chanting, perfectly convinced that this was the way to quench satanic flames. After all, wasn't the fire the devil's work? Or, in threatening the church, perhaps God was showing disapproval at village goings-on. The fire chief of the moment, however, must have been a more practical man, and he ordered this pious crowd to keep its distance. Let him and his men get on with their work. He was cursed, condemned. He was in the wrong. The devout folks were certain of that. And just imagine their satisfaction when three days later the fire chief died quite suddenly. God and Saint Felicite had taken their revenge. The old house we bought had been owned by the Versigny family. There had been a parcel of children and two adults living in three rooms, one kitchen and an attic. The outhouse was way out at the side of the building. Madame Versigny had been of German descent. Perhaps she'd been a war bride. And although she had lived in the village for most of her life, she was still called the Schlu by villagers. A very pejorative word for German. Her children, all adults with families of their own, were also considered German, although they'd been born in France and their father was French. The Versignys had been a simple peasant family, but the children were determined to show they were now part of the middle class. They had built new houses around the old family house, ugly things in cement. 
One son had bought an ancient, long, traditional building, but so modified it as to be no different from the stylish structures of the others in the family. There was no appreciation of old stone, ancient construction, simple aesthetic beauty. We worked on our house, putting an inside bathroom in, painting the place, turning the large, beautiful attic into a room, but in no other way modifying it. It was an old house with much charm, and we were determined to respect it. Its uneven exterior and chalk and sand, the slightly sagging but healthy old red-tiled roof, the large wooden windows and wooden shutters. But maintaining a house in its original style set us apart from the villagers. It was something incomprehensible. Why didn't we use cement? Plastic, like all the other people were doing. The youngest son of the Versini family was known as Banan, banana or idiot. He didn't, like most of his siblings, work in the local tractor factory or in the cannery a few kilometres away. He was the family loser, camping out in the house before it had been sold. But once we bought it, he was homeless. His family was obviously indifferent to his fate. In any case, they wanted nothing to do with him. He was a troublemaker, a petty thief, an embarrassment. While we worked on the house, we didn't live there. But we noticed each time we returned that things were missing. Once it was a sander, the next weekend it was a thick sweater, a screwdriver and a hammer. We went to the police, reported that the house was being entered. Oh, they said, it's just banan. We locked up as best we could, but the next time we arrived, a few pipes and other supplies had gone. We changed the locks, then screws, nails and a saw disappeared. We went to the police again. They nodded. They didn't look in the least bit interested. And so it went on. Anything that could be sold or bartered vanished. It was an annoyance, a rather costly one. Again, we reported the thefts to the police, but the police shrugged. Oh, it's just banan. Nothing to worry about. Well, where is this banan, we asked. Why don't you find him? Oh, we know where he is. He sleeps in the big hay barn just beyond the church. No point in arresting him. He was a local boy from a local family. That was enough to excuse him. We weren't locals. We were foreigners. Therefore, we didn't count for much. All we could do was make the house as secure as possible by adding bars to the windows and bars on the inside of the shutters and heavy locks. There were signs that he continued to try to enter, but he hadn't managed, so we were safe for a while. Of course, anything left outside vanished. Then we moved in, and I bought a few chickens as pets and for the eggs. And then, one by one, they also disappeared. The only thing to do was get a dog. I went to a house a few villages away, because I had heard that a man had several German shepherds and he was told to get rid of them because of overcrowding. There were a swarm of them, and all were packed into a small run like a tin full of sardines. So I picked a sweet, docile-looking girlie. Her name was Jenny. Jenny took her job as watchdog very seriously. She refused to sleep in the house at night, but chose an icy passage just outside the door. 
It didn't matter to her if her coat was covered in ice and snow in the morning, and nothing I did could convince her to stay inside with us. Then one night, I heard barking. I looked out, and Jenny was at the wall, right near the chicken hutch. Obviously, Banan had come back to steal again, but that was the last time he bothered us. A few months later, the large straw-filled barn down the road burnt to the ground. Banan had been in there, smoking cigarettes. The farmer who owned the barn was a local. He wasn't a foreigner, and this time Banan had gone too far. He knew it, too, and he disappeared without trace. Music